0: We're delighted to bring to you an Owen Mitchell special edition podcast from our recent roundtable event, Divorce, Let's Do It Differently. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome to this discussion on alternative dispute resolution in the world of family law presented by Owen Mitchell solicitors. I'm Joshua Rosenberg. I'm a legal commentator and I've been invited by Owen Mitchell to lead this discussion. When family relationships break down, there are often disputes over money and children. If these disagreements can't be resolved by the parties themselves, it's natural to turn to the courts. But that may not be the best way of resolving them. We're here to discuss the alternatives, their advantages and also their disadvantages. To give the discussion some context, Owen Mitchell recently commissioned a survey of around 1,000 divorced people. Six out of 10, knew that going to court wasn't the only way of resolving disputes about money or children. About a third thought the divorce would have cost less if they'd been more amicable. A quarter wished they'd chosen alternatives such as mediation or arbitration, and we'll be talking about those alternatives today. They're supported by the most senior judge in England and Wales, Lord Burnett of Malden, said recently that litigation should not be the first port of call when things go wrong family disputes resolved amicably and quickly leave less damage in their wake, he said. We have a very distinguished panel of speakers, although I'm afraid they're not very diverse alphabetically, with four bunched up at the beginning of the alphabet and one almost at the end. Nicholas Allen QC is Joint Head of Chambers at 29 Bedford Row, where he specialises in high value matrimonial finance work. He's also an experienced financial arbitrator. Janet Baisley, QC, has a broad family law practice at 1GC Family Law. Much of her work involves disputes between parents over their children. She's an experienced arbitrator both in financial and children cases. Ros Beaver is Head of Family Law at Erwin Mitchell. Although much of her work involves acting for high net worth individuals, she says she's passionate about fighting for a fair outcome for all clients. Gillian Bishop is a consultant at Family Law in Partnership, a firm she helped set up more than 25 years ago with a particular emphasis on client care and support, and she takes a strong interest in collaborative law. Lord Wilson, Nicholas Wilson, retired last year as a Justice of the Supreme Court. He started his judicial career in the High Court Family Division and now practices from Fountain Court chambers in arbitration and other forms of dispute resolution, dealing with family work as well as commercial cases. So that's our panel. And because I know that some of our listeners won't be familiar with the topics we'll be discussing, I want to use the first round of questions to explain some of the basics. Um, Ros Beaver from Erwin Mitchell, I want to start with you. I think you began life as a litigator, someone who fights battles in court for her clients. But I gather you've had something of a conversion. Why do you think it's so important that people should know about the alternatives to resolving disputes in court and what are the main options?
2: Well, I'm delighted to be joined by such an expert panel because I think like many of us as practitioners, we all have a default position to uh, the court process when we are asked by clients about how they will reach a resolution, and uh, my fellow panellists are far more further along the change than I am in terms of looking at alternative methods of how they might be able to help their clients to navigate through what is almost certainly a really, really traumatic and often terrifying experience. Today, what we wanted to do at Owen Mitchell was to help raise awareness and to shine a light on the alternatives that are available for clients when they're facing a very difficult stage in their life. I mean, it's really important, I think, that we all as practitioners accept and understand that the clients that we see, it's their case and they should make an informed decision about The options that are available to help them reach a final solution and a resolution. Clients come to see us and we are faced with a set of circumstances and asked to try and help them and navigate the way through a process with a view to ending up with a solution and it's often been a default position to use litigation and there is still a a place for litigation but there are other methods, if you like, more than one way to skin a cat. And those other ways of resolving disputes have not traditionally been shouted about. But the pandemic, certainly in my experience, has really accelerated the use of these alternatives. There is always going to be a place for the court system. And indeed, there is inbuilt within the court system, the early neutral evaluation. By the use of for example a short hearing a financial dispute resolution hearing for example in financial hearings and in those hearings it's an opportunity for clients to have a, a very experienced usually judge you may well be sitting and hearing financial applications to try and distill the issues we all try and distill the issues at the outset of our client's cases. But often it's very, very difficult to do so because of the emotion that's involved and the lack of awareness sometimes of what the other party is thinking. A judge plays a crucial process and that still exists. Mediation is another option and it's, it's long been used, but it's not been as popular as it ought to be in my experience. Uh, Likewise, arbitration, which has really, in my experience, come to the fore during the pandemic when there have been court delays and this has presented us with an opportunity to really use, uh, it's been springboard actually, to use arbitration more frequently, which is an alternative that our clients need to be thinking about. So for me, they are the options.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Ros. Let's look at those in a bit more detail then. Um, Mediation, arbitration, early neutral evaluation. Let's start with mediation. Gillian Bishop from Family Law in Partnership. Tell me about mediation.
3: Well, mediation uh, creates a safe space for separating couples to discuss the issues regarding their money and their children. But with the help of a neutral mediator, That's somebody who is not taking sides, so not representing either party and who doesn't have an agenda, who doesn't have a particular outcome in mind. And mediation, when it works and it can work in up to 85% of cases, is a really good way for the couple to own the outcome of the agreement that they reach, because in effect they've reached it themselves. If I may, I'd like to just quickly mention another process called the collaborative process, which is, if you like, the next step up on the spectrum of ways of resolving these issues um, in terms of involvement of third parties. In the collaborative process, the separating couples still have huge amounts of autonomy in what's discussed and what's agreed, but they each have their own lawyer, and they have the lawyer, the lawyers and and the couple collectively sign an agreement not to go to court and that's a binding agreement between the four of them not to go to court so the emphasis is very much on rolling up your sleeves working out what the problems are working through them uh, and coming to solutions that work for the couple and the family as a whole and then when other experts are needed for example financial uh, financial advisors or child um, specialists Those experts are brought in as a joint expert for for the couple. So those are two other ways of working which keep couples out of court.
1: Gillian, I've got a quick question for you about mediation. What happens if one party to the mediation is stronger than the other? One may be earning more than the other. Does that party, the stronger party, tend to uh, beat down the weaker party because the the weaker party has everything to lose and the stronger party can simply hold out
3: well it shouldn't work like that Uh, a skilled mediator will ensure that that doesn't happen will do their part to level the playing field by asking the questions that the person who doesn't have as much information about the finances will ask the questions for them effectively as i say that mediator acts as a neutral but then they're not there to just watch a stampede over the weaker party.
1: Okay well that's mediation. Nicholas Allen I want to come on to you and I want you to tell me about arbitration particularly in financial cases.
4: Well the the biggest difference Joshua with uh, any other form of non-court dispute resolution is that with arbitration ultimately somebody will impose an outcome on the parties. It's not based on reaching a consensual agreement in the same way as mediation is, as Gillian has just outlined, or collaborative law. But it is fundamentally different to a court process and a court-imposed outcome in a number of ways. First, you choose your arbitrator. There are nearly 300 arbitrators who have been trained and accredited by the Institute of Family Law arbitrators. There are um, something like 250 finance arbitrators, something like 100 children arbitrators. And you, with the assistance, if you're the client, with the assistance of your lawyers, you can choose an arbitrator who you repose trust and confidence in. And that's very different to the court system and it removes an enormous degree of uncertainty from the court system where, with the greatest respect to people like Lord Wilson, it is sometimes a bit of a lottery over which judge you get and you only find out your judge the day before the hearing. Second, you choose the issues that you want the arbitrator to deal with. It can be as broad as the entire financial remedy claim It can be as narrow as determining which party may keep a particular property or whether and when that property should be sold or down to who should keep the contents of the family home. You choose the format. Do you want it to be a paper hearing where the arbitrator just looks at written arguments in writing? Do you want an oral hearing where the parties give evidence? You can choose the method. Do you want it to be uh, by Zoom? Do you want it to be another form of remote platform? And the arbitrator can exercise all the same powers that any family court judge can do but fundamentally it's quicker it's cheaper and it's private
1: okay Janet Baisley you're one of those arbitrators that Nicholas Allen just mentioned who deal with children cases I can understand how an arbitrator can deal with money that's pretty straightforward but it sounds more difficult to decide the arrangements for children when parents split up.
0: I think it's um, very useful for children cases, but there are some aspects which make it more complex in terms of specific things that courts look at with children cases, such as safeguarding. And whereas in the court, one has the court-appointed Kafkas welfare officer who looks at safeguarding, that scheme isn't available within children arbitration. So we have developed a scheme where parties fill in a safeguarding questionnaire, um, confirm that their answers are true, but also provide um, basic safeguarding checks, the sort of checks that Kafkas can make um, via the Disclosure and Barring Service. So that allows us to do safeguarding in children cases And those cases which are successfully screened for safeguarding are suitable for arbitration. So cases where there aren't serious issues about a risk of significant harm to children from the behaviour of the adults who are involved. So um, apart from that, it's a very broad scheme which allows either a single issue or all the issues regarding the welfare of the children to be determined in a binding way outside the court process. So one might have, for instance, a recent development was international relocation cases, which are single issue cases, which, albeit complex, are ideally suited to arbitration. One can appoint an expert to advise on children's wishes and feelings and welfare, and one can deal with a number of cases. Similarly, any arrangement for children, any exercise of parental responsibility and so on, is ideal for children arbitration.
1: Okay, well, we've been talking about ways of avoiding using the courts. Nicholas Wilson, Lord Wilson, if if there's a lot at stake, there must be plenty of people who are happier leaving this to people like you, the judges.
5: Joshua, I think that's right. Um, A woman rang me last week to say, my husband says we can settle this without going to lawyers at all. To which I said, don't fall for that one. I'm quite sure that nobody can sensibly settle uh, their disputes in whatever format without some legal advice as to their rights and obligations. Um, But it does not mean that these cases have to go all the way to court or even part of the way to court. And in a way for me, having worked in the judicial system for so long, Um, It is very sad to have to say that the courts have become increasingly unattractive as a vehicle for resolving family disputes. Uh, The delays, and of course, delay means extra expense for your lawyer and the other side's lawyer. Uncertainty, um, uh, possible publicity, um, a possible appeal, all of these things <clears throat> make going to court increasingly unattractive, although necessary in some cases. Uh, and so um, it, this is a very valuable exercise in talking about alternative ways of resolving disputes. And in the Erwin uh, Mitchell survey, I was very struck with the fact that a third of the people who went to court did not uh, realise that there were alternative uh, methods of resolving their disputes. And most of them wish that they had at least understood what they were. And I'm, I'm surprised about that because judges are now encouraged by rule um, to talk to the parties about alternatives and solicitors are encouraged to do so. And if we, as a result of this discussion this morning, can do anything to make people understand the alternatives better, we will have done something of value. Now, so far as mediation is concerned, um, I was very interested in Gillian saying she thought 85% of cases might be apt for mediation. Um, I think mediation is wonderful. I was president of the Family Mediators Association for many years. I took the view um, with respect to Gillian that perhaps about half of all cases were suitable for mediation. Um, But not all cases because Joshua, as you've touched on, there can be an imbalance, not an imbalance of resources, but an imbalance of bargaining power. And trained mediators are uh, keen to judge whether one party, perhaps often the the wife, but certainly not always, is likely to be in negotiation, suborned uh, by the other, in which case a mediation should not proceed. Equally, where there is distrust, where there is distrust in particular about whether the other party has disclosed his or her financial resources, then mediation seems to me uh, to be very difficult. Can I interrupt you there? Because before we go on to arbitration, I want to
1: give Gillian a chance to come back and 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 defend mediation.
3: Oh, <laughs> well, thank you for that, Joshua. Um, actually, I said it, mediations were eighty-five percent successful. Not necessarily that 85% of cases were suitable for mediation. Although I, I still think that is the case because if you like the really difficult cases, the mad, bad and dangerous ones, as I call them, are the minority. And if you've got two people who are intent on resolving their issues in a sensible, amicable way, in a way that does the least damage to their children, And I think that that is actually the majority of the divorcing and separating population, then they will be intent on finding a way that um, does that. And mediation is obviously uh, one of those ways, along with the collaborative process. So in my experience, mediation has an 85% success rate. But I also think that it is perfectly possible for um, 85% of all separating couples to use mediation, because I don't think that there are so many uh, that um, have aspects of them which make it impossible.
1: Nicholas Wilson, I'll bring you back in a moment, but I want to turn to Nicholas Allen uh, for a moment, because as uh, Nicholas Wilson said, um, an aspect of the court process involves resolving financial disputes by negotiation, uh, and I don't think everybody knows about that. Nicholas Allen, just tell me how that works in practice.
4: in t- In terms of the negotiation, even when anybody embarks on an arbitration process, when anybody embarks on the court process, everybody hopes to resolve the matter by way of a negotiated settlement during the course of the pro- during the course of the process. It's only if those negotiations ultimately fail that you end up having in arbitration, somebody imposing the outcome upon you. So it is a, there's a duty on the parties assisted by their lawyers to negotiate throughout the process. And ultimately and increasingly, a court may impose a costs order on a party if they refuse to negotiate. Now, as. Uh, has been touched upon, the financial dispute resolution process, which is part of the court based process and can be crafted onto an arbitration process is specifically a hearing designed for negotiation and discussion, where another judge who is not allowed to have any further involvement in the case, hears the arguments that would be made at a final hearing and says, well, if I was your final hearing judge, this is what I think I would do. And the vast majority of judges, the vast majority of the time, do broadly similar things, even if two judges will not do identical things. So the financial dispute resolution within the court system or the equivalent within arbitration has a very high settlement rate where the um, where, where the private FDR evaluator says to the parties this is what I think broadly the outcome will be see if you can negotiate a settlement round in these kind of parameters and save yourself an awful lot of emotional cost and financial cost.
1: Nicholas Wilson I promised I'd come back to you for a quick word on arbitration.
5: Yes, Um, so far as mediation is concerned, I mean Gillian Bishop's experience of mediation is vast. And if she is even more optimistic than I am um, about the number of people who can be assisted to reach an agreement through mediation, I I give way to her view. But we're both very optimistic about it and think it should be tried more often than it is. So far as early neutral evaluation is concerned, um, uh, this was developed in the courts in the uh, mid 90s. Uh, It was an idea, I think, of Lord Justice Thorpe. Um, But when I was at the bar prior to that, the only way of settling a case was the the solicitors and barristers on each side, if there were barristers, um, trying to negotiate. And I, it's often been said, oh, well, these, um, these lawyers, they're only keen on bumping up fees. They don't want to settle the case. I have to say, in all my years of um, practice in the family justice field, I never came across a, a solicitor or, fa- or counsel who was just bumping up the fees. I came across uh, solicitors and counsel who did bump up the fees because they misread the case and they misadvised their clients. But in terms of cynical bumping up fees, this is not something I believe, thank God, that we have in this country. And um, Nicholas Allen has well explained uh, the early neutral evaluation uh, uh, idea, and more and more of these things are being done uh, privately. And as Nicholas Allen says, it is a confidential prediction of the result. And although it's not binding on the parties, they've got to consider very carefully the uh, suggestion made by the uh, predictor, who's uh, heard all the argument and given a sort of reasoned mini judgment as to why he or she thinks that the result is going to be X. But so far as arbitration is concerned, this is the new kid uh, on the block. It's of increasing importance. And um, uh, the attractiveness of it is not only speed, and speed means less. Um, uh, expenditure on one's own lawyer, and that may be counterbalanced only to a limited extent by having to pay the cost of the arbitrator, but also finality. Um, That is the the theme that runs through uh, all arbitrations, commercial and family, and Joshua, we may want to discuss uh, in a moment whether uh, family arbitrations are now as final as uh, they are um, Uh, they were, in my view, uh, intended to be. But all these three uh, areas of alternative dispute resolution are very important and need better to be understood. We will indeed. Before we do that, I want to come to Ros Beaver
1: because I want to ask about uh, this uh, idea of resolving your uh, financial disputes during the court process that uh, Nicholas Wilson has been talking about and, and Nicholas Allen, um, we've uh, we've heard that there are these financial dispute resolution hearings, uh, and that the parties are encouraged to to settle, um, and that uh, they are offered a judge who will not be the judge who decides the case if there isn't agreement. But it's also possible to book somebody to do that privately, isn't it? You can pay for somebody to uh, try to uh, give you an early neutral evaluation. Is is that right, Ros?
2: Yes, that's right. And I think that there has been an increased appetite for using that private process because the courts have been pretty overwhelmed in recent years um with an increasing number of litigants in person um and i think and that means that people are not represented largely attributable to um legal aid having been removed to assist those who cannot afford legal representation so there has been an increased use of a private fdr hearing which is Almost exactly the same, exactly the same as the process that you would go through at a court hearing. However, it is usually conducted in uh, an environment which is suited to the clients. They can choose. It is in with usually with a very experienced judge. That is not to say that the court process does not have experienced judges dealing with cases but you can identify an absolute expert in their field to hear the case. And it is a quicker and often more pleasant experience for clients with a clear indication being given. And it is, in my experience, equally as cost effective. Whilst there is a cost attached to paying the judge, which you wouldn't have in the normal court process, because the case is distilled very quickly and the issues are resolved without that constituent delay that you might have in the court process, in my experience, it is actually more cost-effective.
1: Um, well, let, let, let me take that up with Janet Baisley, because I'd, I'd like to get some idea of the figures involved. Uh, we've heard from Roz that if you have uh, a barrister or solicitor, who acts as either somebody who provides this uh, neutral evaluation or who sits as an arbitrator, that individual is going to charge a fee, uh, which is in addition to the fees that uh, uh, you have to pay your lawyer. So what sort of money are we, we talking about, Janet?
0: There's a, there's a range, as you would expect, Joshua, but most barristers and solicitors who act as arbitrators will publish their fees on a fixed fee basis and we're looking at for a one-day arbitration something between two and a half and five thousand in a children case for a second day you will pay about half of that for the second day and um so one knows in advance and if one compares that with several more months of litigation through the courts with solicitor correspondence and so on there is usually a vast difference. So that although you have to pay your arbitrator, um, you get it back and more. But I think it's also relevant to look at the emotional cost of doing children cases through the courts. Ross spoke of it being traumatic for parents. It very often is. And I think the court process, try as it might, cannot be um, as easy and relaxed as an arbitration process where you would usually go to the arbitrator's chambers um, or a room that is booked. You can have input into how you'd like the chairs arranged, whether you want a formal courtroom style or whether you want something much more informal. And it, because it's a bo- bespoke pr- process, you can make it much more relaxed and each, each side will have a room to have their own discussions in comfort, and so on. So one has to factor in the emotional and other costs of litigation when one's looking at the financial cost. I think.
1: Okay, well, Nicholas Wilson referred to a case decided by the Court of Appeal last October. It involved Russell Haley and his wife Kelly. Their marriage came to an end after, I think, 12 or 13 years, and the financial dispute resolution hearing that we've been talking about, that failed to produce a settlement. They were given a two-day hearing before a district judge in September 2019. But a week before it was due to start, they were told that there was no judge available, and they would uh, probably have to wait months for a hearing. So instead of that, they found an arbitrator who was free the following week, which was very convenient because that's when their lawyers were uh, ready to uh, argue the case. The arbitrator produced his decision, his award as it's called, but Mr. Haley thought it was unfair and he challenged it in the High Court. Now, his challenge was dismissed by a part-time judge who also sits as a commercial arbitrator. She relied on an earlier ruling by Mr. Justice Mostyn, who had said that the Family Court would refuse to approve an arbitrator's award only if an error was so blatant and extreme that it leaps off the page. But that judgment was overturned by the Court of Appeal last year. Lady Justice King said that the Family Court could substitute its own order if the judge decided that the arbitrator's award was wrong, not seriously or obviously wrong or so wrong that it leaps off the page, but just wrong. So um, the question I want to um, ask um, all of you is this, uh, does that um, decision make arbitration more attractive because you can overturn an award that was just wrong, or does it make arbitration less attractive because it has lost the certainty that it once had. I want to start with Nicholas Allen on this, um, as an arbitrator yourself. Um, what has been the effect of this, this judgment, this case of Haley?
4: Well, I think like any good lawyer, Joshua, I answer your question by saying it could be both, um, or on the on one hand or on the other hand. I think a lot of solicitors in advising their clients about the merits or demerits of arbitration prior to the Haley decision felt sometimes reluctant to recommend arbitration to their clients because that it was perceived to be more difficult to appeal Um, if your client was unhappy with the uh, award now as I've already said in one of my earlier answers one of the advantages of choosing your arbitrator should mean it's less likely that you're going to be unhappy with the award because you've chosen a specialist, you've handpicked him or her to decide the case. So I think many solicitors will say, and some barristers will say, arbitration is now more attractive because you can, if you think the arbitrator has got it wrong, appeal in exactly the same way you can through the court system. And effectively an arbitration is now treated as being the equivalent of a first instance decision by a judge in the family court. And if you think he or she got it wrong, then a higher court can overturn it. But one of the huge advantages of arbitration was finality. And in commercial arbitration, uh, and family arbitration and commercial arbitration are technically governed by the same statute and rules, in commercial arbitration deliberately, the rule that the scope for a challenge of the award are very narrow and that is why many commercial uh, parties sign up to arbitration as an alternative to court so they know what their arbitrature decides will be final and therefore logically there's a question mark now against that in the context of family law cases both financial and one
1: assumes children. Rose Beaver, you have to advise clients in this area. What have you advised them after this uh, ruling from the Court of Appeal last year?
2: Well, I think as with every single option that you recommend to a client, it's about them making an informed decision. So Nick is absolutely right that you would advise a client prior to Hayley that there was no option other than to uh, that the arbitral award would be final. But to me, I think personally, That it is right that the court should be able to review an arbitral award because in the same way as um, a higher level of court can consider an award that's been made otherwise it is it to me it seems absolutely right that it should be capable of that but i think in terms of nick's point certainly from my perspective i have found that those clients who might have been Um, in some way sceptical about not having the option of appealing an arbitral award has it's opened the opportunity and broadened the ability for me to uh, explain to clients that that is an option and it won't be necessarily the end there if they perceive that it is absolutely unfair because I, I personally believe very fervently that it is for us to make the give the information to our clients, but them to make an informed decision. So they should be making
3: that decision, and this opens the option.
1: Julian Bishop, what's the approach of your firm to this this particular ruling?
3: Well, I don't know that it's uh, changed, other than clearly the advice has changed about whether you can appeal um, an arbitration or not. Um, we have four med- um, arbitrators in our firm, and we're big proponents of it. I've found, though, in my experience that a lot of lawyers are keen on um, arbitration, but an equal number aren't. And so quite a lot of referrals for arbitration don't go very far uh, because the other party won't agree or their lawyer won't agree. And I think it's really important to say, and Ros is right to say that the choice of uh, forum is very much that of the client. But they are undoubtedly influenced by the personal view of their lawyer. And if the lawyer is not happy or is anxious about arbitration, or indeed any of the other alternative processes to the court, then what a surprise, their clients won't be either. So, I, you know, we have a big, big influence and we shouldn't ever forget that. I sometimes, when I have a new client, will ask them to describe how they would like their case resolved. Very few of them describe court. Most of them say what I would like to do beyond anything else is sit down around the table with my partner and try and work it out because we've got children. Or even if they haven't got children, they want to work it out in a, in a pain, not painless, but, <laughs> but certainly less pain kind of way. And I think once you've got a client saying, I don't want to go to court, I don't want to um, have somebody determine this for me, y- you can start working with them about the different options that they've got.
1: Okay, well Janet Basley, let me bring you in here briefly to talk about the, the Haley decision. Does that support you or does it in some way undermine you? Has it made your life easier, more difficult, more busy? <laughs>
0: Um, I agree with um, Nick Allen that it was a problem for people that if the arbitrator got it very wrong, um, how could they appeal it? Because if one was looking at the commercial basis for an appeal, it would be almost impossible. However, I do think the Haley judgment causes us problems because it suggests that the court can just have another look rather than having to establish the party wanting a review of the decision, having to establish that there's something very wrong with it, as one would have to do, if one was seeking permission from a court to appeal a lower court's decision. So I think that's problematic. It hasn't really played out much in children arbitrations yet, but it'd be interesting to see what the impact is and what future decisions are and how that decision of Lady Justice King in the Court of Appeal is interpreted in future cases and applied in future cases.
1: Nicholas Wilson, you've been waiting there patiently. You raised this issue. What do you make of that judgment and its effect?
5: Well, with all due respect to my mates in the Court of Appeal, I am surprised by this decision. Um, The family arbitration system expressly incorporated uh, the uh, statute to which Nicholas Allen has referred, which makes recourse to the courts by a dissatisfied customer of an arbitration very difficult. And in in my view, the attractiveness of arbitration was um, in in it's, almost, it's, it's finality or near finality, and the saving in costs that would attend near finality. Uh, and the, the problem about family cases, uh, Joshua, is that um, uh, an arbitral award in family cases really ought to be converted into a court order. Because in particular, if the arrangement is a clean break between husband and wife, uh, that is something that's got to be recorded to be entirely watertight in a court order. So you've got to go to court, and we have a, a, a an old act of parliament which says that when asked to make an order, the court must look at all the circumstances. Now I had always uh, assumed that when the court looks at all the circumstances in, in deciding whether to make an order in accordance with an arbitral award, it would say simply. They agreed on a final procedure, and that is the overarching uh, factor, which makes it fair and appropriate for us to make an order uh, in these terms. Um, But if you're going to be able to, for any um, uh, participant in an arbitration, to say, this is wrong, and I should have thought many um, uh, participants would, would want to say, this is wrong, then instead of saving costs, Joshua, you've got more costs and more costs than you'd have otherwise, because you're going off to court to say it's wrong. There may be one or two hearings before a judge in relation to that. That can can be the subject of an appeal. So instead of fewer costs, um, it's more costs, and it's uncertainty. And so to my mind, the real advantages of uh, arbitration have been uh, lessened uh, by this uh, decision. And Nicholas
1: Wilson, another advantage of arbitration, I imagine, is that it's private. uh, And that's the case also with uh, hearings, I think at first instance in family cases uh, in the law courts. But uh, here we are talking about um, Mr. and Mrs. Haley picking over their their divorce. Um, I don't suppose either of them expected that it was going to become public property, did they?
5: Well, I'm sure that's that's absolutely right, Joshua.
1: And uh, let me ask the others um, about this aspect of of privacy. Is the idea of uh, deciding your disputes uh, privately uh, something that appeals to clients because uh, it avoids journalists like me getting any idea of what's going on at least until and rather curiously the rule changes when you get to the Court of Appeal Um, or or is that the case with um, matters resolved in the courts anyway and so perhaps that uh, isn't a factor who wants to answer that
0: I could have a go at that, Joshua.
1: Janet, thank you.
0: Um, Certainly, it's a big issue for parties in children proceedings. The fact that they've got to go to court, have the name of their case, sometimes in some courts actually published on a court list. This is, of course, when we were going to attended hearings on a regular basis. Um, If they have any, um, if there are people who are sort of publicly known, it's a particular issue. And um, to be able to go to a private place, and how full confidentiality is a real attraction. And it's not just for people who are actors or famous in some way or publicly known, but also other people say they find it really difficult to have to go to a court with a melee of people all looking at them as they play out their children dispute. So I think it's a real attraction, certainly in children cases.
1: Okay, uh, Nicholas Allen.
0: The, The rules
4: about whether the media can attend uh, family court hearings, financial court hearings, are incredibly complex and I'm not sure anybody fully understands the competing rule and statute. I'm, I certainly don't about when and whether and how media can attend financial proceedings and if they do what they're able to um, report. Um, it's made, there's another aspect of the lottery because there is one high court judge who Hears all his cases at first instance openly, so we can't even say if you're dealing with a financial case in the High Court that um, you can be guaranteed privacy at first instance. Because if you draw this particular High Court judge, he will hear the 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 the, the, the final hearing in open court. Is that there his is, choice? Is that is that up to him to decide then? Um, he, he 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 believes it is. I think there are other, I think there are other members of the High Court who take a slightly different view. Um, that that that's my politic answer, Joshua, and that, that's as far as I'm going to be be drawn. I think. But uh, uh, returning to Haley and the the consequences of an ambition appeal the point you raised, Joshua, about Mr. and Mrs. Haley. privacy at first instance, and then having their appeal heard in public, there's a very interesting question that hasn't yet been resolved by arbitration or the courts about whether parties could agree to arbitrate any appeal, and therefore any appeal would be heard privately. That's a question that I think different people take different
1: views upon. Um, That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Does anybody want to hazard an answer to to whether that can be done? Uh, Gillian Bishop.
3: Well, I've got no idea whether it can be done, but I think it's a really good idea and I think that this is the challenge for us lawyers now as we uh, progress through the 21st century, which is to devise methods of resolution which work for our clients because at the end of the day, no clients, no money, uh, no clients recommending us, you know, means, means no business. And I think we've if we're genuinely putting our clients front and centre in the work that we do, then we need to start continuing actually developing ways of resolution which suit them. So, for example, there's a development already of a scheme called MedArb, which is a smooth transition from mediation to arbitration if within the mediation process a couple can't come to their own solution. And there's a sim- similar model being worked out within the collaborative process so a kind of collab arb Uh, and there are other processes i think and we have that challenge not to just do same old same old this is the set number of ways that you can resolve your issues we need to be creative and inventive and we need to be thinking about the family as a whole whoever we're representing if a couple have children together We need to be thinking about where they come in the picture, even if their arguments aren't over the children. It must be heartbreaking for a child to read in the newspapers about their parents' divorce and separation. Uh, One can't imagine the upset that that must cause. Ros Beaver, do you want to come in here?
2: What I was just going to say was one of the challenges that I've really found to be a real problem particularly over the last few months, has been where you're trying to encourage the other side to engage in arbitration. For example, when they are tactically trying to delay matters and you have a court hearing, final hearing. So, for instance, I had one where the the final hearing had been removed from the court list on three occasions and I was acting for a woman in that case where she was desperate to bring the matter to a conclusion and in that case not only had she incurred all of the costs of preparing for a final hearing only to be told for the third time that a judge was not available, we were faced with a situation where it we were not able to force the husband in that case who was he did not want to engage to arbitrate. And I think that one of the things that we really need is more teeth um, to force people down that route, if we can do it. And I know that Nick looked up really quickly then because I read his judgment um, and I think that that's a real start using part three of the family procedure rules. And I thought that was a brilliant idea, but I do think we need more teeth to force people to engage because we are, we are at the mercy of the other party and often it's in their interest not to progress the case and they're using it to a tactical advantage. And it's, it's dreadful for those who want to just get a final conclusion.
5: Nicholas Wilson? Uh, we've obviously been talking, and most importantly, about the resolution of children issues. Joshua, um, I became convinced when I was doing family law for all those years that an agreement between the parents in relation to a child issue was much more likely to hold than than an imposed solution. And so I'm particularly convinced of the importance of mediation with the independent mediator from below facilitating an agreement, teasing things out, steering them towards, well, why don't we think of that? Why don't we think of this? I think mediation in Trojan cases is particularly important and valuable. That leads me to ask a question of Janet, if I may be so bold, Arbitration in Trojan cases. Now look, this is the imposition of a result rather than the facilitation of an agreement. And arbitration, as we've been saying, is supposed to be final. So my question to, a respectful question to uh, Janet Baisley is, how can any Trojan decision be final? Children grow up, their wishes change. Uh, A parent changes home. Uh, A a parent changes work. For whatever reason, the arrangements reached last year are no longer appropriate. So if I may uh, ask her, how how can it be that there is a a wide role for final arbitration in an essentially unfinal um, area of dispute? Janet?
0: Um, I agree that nothing is ever final in a children's case, because if one's as one is in arbitration, applying the welfare checklist in in the Children Act, one's got to look at the children's changing needs. What the intention behind children arbitration is that the decision that's made on the ground, for instance, whether the children go with one parent to live in Australia um, and so on, is a final decision in so far as anything can be final in children cases. And exactly the same applies in the court process. You have a final judgment, you have a final decision, It's hard to change it. You have to show there's been a very significant change in circumstances, which means that the decision no longer meets the best interest of the child. It's exactly the same in arbitration. If you had an award in arbitration, we like to call them determination in children cases because we don't award children. But um, one then usually would be advised and the arbitrator can impose on the parties that they get a court order reflecting the arbitral decision then in the same way as one can seek to vary a court order in uh, achieved through the court process you can do exactly the same with a determination in arbitration and that's got to be right because otherwise one's not reflecting the best interests of the children as they get older and circumstances change but i don't think that's a point against children arbitration Can I move
1: on to the Divorce, Dissolution and Separation Act 2020, Um, some of our listeners may have spotted that, it was passed by Parliament more than a year ago, but it won't come into force I think until next spring, and when it does, applicants for a divorce order as it'll be called, or the dissolution of a civil partnership, will no longer have to prove bad behaviour by the other party or separation or anything uh, like that. Uh, It's what people refer to as no fault divorce. Uh, Will that make any difference to what we have been talking about? Who wants to answer that? Ros Beaver, you have a lot of clients who must be uh, uh, looking ahead to this.
2: There are a lot of clients, prospective clients, who are looking ahead to it, but for me, I don't think it's going to make a tremendous amount of difference to how we deal with the ancillary issues which arise as a consequence of a divorce. I, I think it's a a welcome development. I think it takes a lot of heat out of the situation at the very outset. On the other hand, it sometimes is a cathartic experience for an individual to set out particulars of behaviour and, and get it off the chest, as it were. But to me, I don't think it's going to make a a very significant difference to the issues we're talking about today.
1: And and Gillian Bishop, I suppose uh, we already have some of your clients who are perhaps trying to save money doing the mechanics of the divorce itself um, themselves online, which you can do, uh, and then coming to you to sort out the more difficult problems that we've been talking about, the money and the children. Uh,
3: That's right. And uh, now that divorce petitions can be done online um, it's much easier for, for clients to deal with that aspect themselves and if there's no dispute between them as to the reasons for the divorce they may have already been separated for two years for example so that's already a no fault basis or one of them may agree to uh, an adultery petition or something like that I I think the problem comes the majority of divorce proceedings are based on the unreasonable behavior or the perceived unreasonable behavior of one of the parties. And if you haven't got someone telling you that you don't need to write a a bestseller on all the reasons why you want to leave your husband or wife or partner, um, then people may well put in an awful lot of unnecessary invective, which is you know quite distressing for the recipient um so it is helpful i think if you're going to do a uh, an unreasonable behavior petition as we have them now uh, to just get some basic advice as to what's necessary and what isn't necessary because if you're the recipient of a whole string of complaints it puts you on the back foot and you're much more likely to be aggressive in your dealings with the other person than if it's a sort of fairly benign, even an agreed form of wording. And it's quite common these days, whilst we still have fault-based divorce, uh, for people to agree what the petitions say, so that the uh, language is not so kind of offensive and provoking uh, as it might otherwise be.
1: Um, Nicholas Allen and and then uh, Ros Beaver, Nicholas Allen.
4: I, I understand and agree why Ros says that the change in the law next April may not make a particularly significant difference to what we're otherwise talking about today but it, it must be good that in future the first time that you go to see your solicitor your solicitor is not going to say to you tell me 10 horrible things that your husband and wife has done during the course of your marriage that hardly sets things off on a good footing as Gillian says and so given that any form of non-court dispute resolution is consensual both parties have to agree to do mediation both parties have to agree to do collaborative law both parties have to agree to enter financial or children arbitration it must be a good thing that parties are uh, are not throwing mud at each other from the first time they go to see their solicitors
2: i totally agree with that However, I do think it's important that clients understand that what is said in that petition is unlikely to affect anything that goes on going forward. It's only in the most limited of circumstances. And I think if we as responsible uh, solicitors, practitioners are trying to work together collaboratively to agree particulars and to give clear advice as to the impact that what is said might have, then we are taking the heat out of the situation. The The main point I wanted to make was that it is unlikely that it is going to influence anything else.
1: Nicholas Wilson, this is quite a significant change in the law, although in one sense, it's really uh, putting the law in the way that you might have thought parliament had intended, um, what was it, 50 years ago?
5: Quite, quite 50 years we've had this um, act of parliament. Uh, and the current divorce laws are out of the arc. Um, A woman goes in to see her solicitor. Uh, I can't can't continue with this marriage. We've separated last week. Um, Well, if you're prepared to wait two years, there can be a consensual. Two years is a hell of a long time, Joshua. And most people can't, in those circumstances, uh, hack it. And so um, she says, I I can't possibly wait two years. I want it resolved. Well, has your husband committed adultery? Not so far as I know. Then uh, you've got to allege unreasonable behaviour. And it is, in my view, intensely provocative for a husband to be served, um, sometimes out of the blue or sometimes not, um, with a petition alleging that as he will read it. He's the one responsible for the breakdown of the marriage because he's done A, B, C and D. And it gets the case off on a wrong foot. And the wrong foot may um, make, may wrong foot the attempts to resolve the, um, the, the important issues relating to the children and money. So I do think that this reform has indirectly a beneficial effect on what we've been talking about this morning.
1: Okay, last topic for you all, and it's really the one about the future, and uh, it follows on from um, what Nicholas Wilson and the others have just been saying about uh, perhaps taking the bitterness out of divorce. Uh, Janet Baisley, can I start um, with you? Um, Will there be less of a role for the courts in future? Will there be perhaps less of a role for marriage in future?
0: Interesting questions. Um, I can't speak for marriage, but um, I hope there will be increasingly a less, lesser role for the courts. I don't think this act actually does that because contested divorces almost never happen now. But I hope that it might lead people to think, well, if I can do this consensually online, maybe I can do other aspects of unraveling the breakdown of the marriage without the court being involved so I hope that a culture will increasingly develop Um, and I think this um, Erwin Mitchell scheme to try and erase awareness of it will encourage people into finding other ways of resolving their disputes so I very much hope that we will continue to develop alternative ways of resolving the issues that always arise in breakdown of the marriage whether there are children or not um, and that um, mediation arbitration and the alternative ways of resolving disputes will
3: increasingly be
0: used.
1: Gillian Bishop, are you optimistic about the future?
3: I think it's inevitable that um, there will have to be different uh, ways of working. We've already seen the start of certain services that involve one lawyer uh, rather than two, as, as is the conventional way. So there's already a service going called the Divorce Surgery, where the um, parties are given a a very early indication of what they think an outcome might be both in relation to money and children. Uh, And I think that it's inevitable because there's an increasing demand from the public that they should be able to see one lawyer who can give them both uh, information about their uh, options when it comes to dividing their financial resources and working out arrangements for their children. And I think that there's just going to be a bigger and bigger and bigger push from the public uh, towards something that is much simpler, much less cost effective, much more cost effective, much more damp, much less damaging for their families uh, than the systems that we have at the moment. So, you know, there's lots of examples around the world, um, for example, in Australia, something called the Melbourne Collaborative Alliance, where they m- meet two lawyers. There are two lawyers in that that example, but they have a joint financial advisor. They have a joint uh, communication coach so that they don't just yell and scream at each other. Uh, they have a, a joint uh, child advisor and they work it all out together and for a fixed fee. I mean, it's quite an interesting example. We've tried to do it here. hasn't worked yet, but I'm sure that's to come.
1: Nicholas Allen, the future.
4: I'm certainly very optimistic about the future for non-court dispute resolution. The courts will continue to be under strain. Um, The courts were underfunded before the COVID-19 pandemic. Delays were endemic. Those delays have only got worse, as everyone will have seen from the media reports. The the headlines are given to criminal cases, but the same are true about civil cases as well. Um, In terms of arbitration, Um, 25% of all finance arbitrations have taken place since March of last year and 40% of private law children arbitrations have taken place since March of last year, although from a smaller uh, starting base in in terms of absolute numbers. So I think um, we have reached a tipping point in respect of non-court dispute resolution. I think judges will continue to encourage people to use alternatives to court. And I think whether it is mediation, collaborative arbitration, med-arb, it's not one size fits all. And I think more and more members of the public are going to be saying to their solicitors, um, why do I have to go to court? Why can't I use one of the alternatives?
1: Nicholas Wilson, the last word from you, please.
5: You asked two questions. The first was, will there be less of a role for courts? Uh, There will be less of a role for courts, I'm quite sure, but certainly there will continue to be a role for courts. And I suspect that when Nicholas Allen and Janet Baisley uh, give their reasons for an arbitral award, they are comparing the present case with a a reported court case. So uh, they need examples in court of um, the application of the current law. And we also need the development of the law. Look at the development of the law of financial provision over the last 21 years. Um, And so for for those reasons, if for no other, and there are other reasons, namely the intractability of some cases and the obstinacy of some litigants that will certainly uh, call for court adjudication. Your second question was, is there less of a role for marriage? and the statistics are quite clear that you are right to suggest that there is less of a role for marriage, but it does not follow that there should be less of a role for courts in relation to non-marital disputes. And can I respectfully suggest to Erwin Mitchell that we might, they might have another survey and that we might in a few months or years time be all discussing whether the law in relation to provision for non-marital partners uh, should be at last um, reformed.
1: Ros Beaver, that's a question for you, I think.
2: That would be fantastic. Uh,
1: and Ros <laughs> Beaver, just more generally, where, where do you see the future then? Uh, where do you see the the future in terms of the use of courts and uh, alternatives to courts and, and the issues we've been discussing?
2: I think that we've seen um, evolution along the way. And I think that we've seen a, a huge acceleration of that during the pandemic Um, it's quite astonishing that it's taken a pandemic to make us more alive to our options for our clients frankly. Um, I think that it is absolutely vital that we work together for the common goal of our clients and I think that there has been an absolute increased appetite for collaborating not in the collaborative law sense necessarily but collaborating as family practitioners and I think that we are all in it together which enables us to work harder and quicker towards evolving so that our clients have a dignified exit from a relationship and as cost effective as possible. We may be seen as just trying to ramp up fees but certainly I don't think any of us are. We are all trying to distill issues, navigate the way through for our clients And I think that we will see an acceleration of that collaboration as a consequence of the pandemic, frankly. That's my own personal view. I think it's been a springboard for real change.
1: Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of this discussion on alternative dispute resolution in the world of family law, presented by Owen Mitchell's solicitors. I'm Joshua Rosenberg and the speakers in reverse alphabetical order this time were Lord Wilson, the former Supreme Court Justice, now based at Fountain Court Chambers, Julian Bishop, a consultant at Family Law in Partnership, Ros Beaver, head of Family Law at Owen Mitchell, Janet Baisley QC from 1GC Family Law Chambers, and Nicholas Allen QC, Joint Head of Chambers at 29 Bedford Row. Thank you for listening.